2: Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's episode is brought to listeners in part by the Entrepreneurs Organization, the world's leading entrepreneurs group. EO is a global peer-to-peer network of more than 13,000 influential business owners in 58 countries around the world. EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other, and the EO Toronto chapter is now accepting a limited amount of qualified members. For more information on joining EO, visit eotoronto.ca and click Apply Now. Today is my conversation with Jesse Horwitz, co-founder and co-CEO at Hubble, one of America's fastest-growing direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. Hubble is a new brand of contact lenses founded on the basis of offering high-quality, affordable lenses. Horwitz and his co-founder, Ben Kogan, have helped Hubble grow exponentially and extend its footprint around the world. And in this episode, we get into how Hubble raised over $7 million in pre-revenue funding, Hubble's impressive investor list, which includes, among others, Oscar Salazar's co-founder at Uber, trends related to media buying and customer acquisition, specifically on Facebook, and so much more. Jesse is what Seinfeld enthusiasts might refer to as a fast talker. So listen up guys. And with that, here is my great chat with Jesse Horwitz.
1: So Ben and I were friends from Bridgewater. We were interns together there 2011. Um, we were living across the street from each other on the Upper West Side. I was on the investment team for Columbia's endowment and was at Harry's uh, shaving subscription, and so he was already in the box subscription space. You know, saw contact lenses as a, another category with a lot of the same pain points: inconvenient delivery, high price, um, supply controlled by a couple of manufacturers. And so we started digging in together to see whether it would work for a subscription offering. Uh, This was like late 15, early 2016. Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, you guys had raised seed money. Was it pre-revenue that you raised?
1: Yeah, we raised off the deck. I mean, look, it was a good time to do it. Uh, Harry's had just launched in Target. It was right around when Dollar Shave sold to Unilever. So um, Mm -hmm. a lot of excitement about the space, Um, you know. Good sort of backgrounds between Ben coming from Harry's and me coming off the investment side of things, um, you know. And so I think Confluence is kind of marketable founders, um, right time, is, you know, is a good time to be outgoing for capital.
2: Yeah. Do you think if you had this deck sort of 2019, that you guys would have been successful in raising as much as you did?
1: I think it's been interesting watching how capital on the direct to consumer space has evolved, which is I'm not sure. Um, you know, a lot of good, no, a lot of seeds are still getting, you know, a lot of good size seeds are still getting done. I'd, I'd say the the more interesting piece is a lot of other capital solutions that are coming into the space. Um, so, you know, you're seeing funds now, whether it's on the debt side, specialist funds, direct to consumer founders, um, both with better understanding of kind of the needs of these businesses and, um, you know, and, and sort of sizing the capital appropriately to, um, you know, to make exits and sort of that, you know, 50 to 100 million range doable. Right. You With know, everyone walking away happy.
2: So um, I think there's a lot of listeners that would just be interested in understanding how they put a rough valuation on a business that's pre-revenue. And I mean, you guys have, have done it brilliantly. You raised over 7 million, I think, in, in that first seed round. Um, so what lessons could
1: you share in that regard? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'd say we did it in two, we did it in two bites. We did three and a half in May, 2016, and then another 3.7 in October, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we were pre-revenue on both of them. Um, on, on the first one, I, I think generally, um, I mean, I don't know whether it's it's different in San Francisco, certainly, you know, New York venture things are still, you know, seems feels appropriately. So kind of range bound on five to 10 pre money. Um, and you know, we started off talking with folks at kind of the lower end of that range going for smaller dollars and, yeah, you know, it's just sort of supply and demand matching, which is you think about. Okay, as a founder, you want less dilution. As a investor, you want more ownership, um, and on both sides, you want a better capitalized company because it's de-risking. You know, and so kind of the conversation you know we had then um, was okay, we would take a bit more uh, dilution than we were, you know, initially looking for um, valuation would go up a bit higher than folks were maybe. You know thinking at the outset and you know still kind of in that range
2: it's interesting so i've never heard the concept of supply demand matching with respect to raising early investment that's interesting how did you guys go about found finding i should say your investors
1: as we were going out for our seed and we sort of thought ahead um to the work in between seed and you know between that raise and launch a lot of it was sort of manufacturer and regulatory diligence and um and so we were talking with a lot of consumer funds but we were cognizant of the other piece too and um the guy I know, um, Josh knew now Josh Kazam, um, mostly primarily a biotech investor. Um, he and his he and his team were the um, lead on you see, the seed and you know, founders of a uh, uh, Kike Pharma, which sold to Gilead for twelve billion in twenty seventeen. Um mm-hmm. uh, you know, they got interested because consumer exposure for them, um, but sort of, you know, with a healthcare angle that made it feel a bit more um, familiar. And, and, and Josh was the one who introduced us to Brian Levy, um, who was the former Chief Medical Officer at Bashamom, Loam, and, and Oscar um, Salazar, who was the, you know, founding CTO at Uber. You know, and so those were kind of relationships and introductions that was sort of put, you know, Josh and Josh um, knows the folks and over at Wildcat David Bonderman's family office. So it was, it was sort of Josh's group, Two River and Wildcat, who led our took our whole seat. Those were kinds of the things that put that syndicate up, you know, up and out ahead of the pack, um, and you know why we ended up working with them.
2: How important was Levy's expertise?
1: At that point, we were still unsure: do we do monthlies? Do we do dailies? Um, and you know it was it was Brian who said um, the pain point in the industry for the last thirty years had been the lack of affordability for dailies and you know, daily disposable lenses, and that that's really where we should zero in. And then I mean Brian came with us on diligence trips to, um, you know, to to potential manufacturers. Um, you know, you know given us all sorts of perspective on, on the industry more broadly. I mean he's he's been essential to the business.
2: So on those trips, let me ask you about how you found Sainshine. And, and were they the first manufacturer?
1: If you think about the space, ninety-five percent of supply is controlled by the top four manufacturers. That's um, J and J, Bausch and Loam, um, Cooper and Cooper Vision, and Novartis uh, Alcon, which is actually now uh, spinning out. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, and the other, and you know, the other whatever five percent is, you know, a long tail. So we went through the entire FDA five ten K database. See everyone who's you know, manufacturing lenses. Um, And saint shine was, you know, the, the single independent with a lot of scale, um, and with enough scale to support a business like this, um, them and actually one other partner, uh, Jinka, who we also signed. And so, you know, that was a key focus for us at the gate was, you know, get exclusivity, um, with the folks with uh, scale to support the business, um, you know, and kind of insulate ourselves a bit from what's happened in a space like mattresses with you know, dozens and dozens of players.
2: And also traditional eyewear, right? Prescription frames, mm-hmm. um, controlled by, I think it was only a couple manufacturers before Warby, right? And that was the opportunity they saw.
1: Um, yes, but I would say, you know, I, I would say on that one, a lot more private, a lot more contract supply available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more. And so you have. I mean, what's interesting about Warby? Warby's done fantastically with retail. But if you look, I think if you look at sort of um, purely just the e-commerce part of the landscape, um, more share certainly to Zenni Optical, maybe to I, I Um And you know, these guys sort of taking a somewhat different approach and model to e-commerce glasses. You know, sort of instead of the try and buy where you're still talking about a $100 pair of glasses, just moving the cost of the frames down to, you know, five to 10 to 20 bucks um, so that you don't need the try and buy. You can sort of just start treating them as disposables. And that's been a big success for glasses in the e-com space.
2: Got it. So you mentioned disposables. I want to ask you about that quickly. Why aren't disposables the norm in North America like they are in Europe and Japan, for instance? Is it just the pricing?
1: Yeah, just the pricing. Um, right, a bit more regulation here, higher prices here. Um, you know, not, not terribly friendly to the consumer, and you know, it's kept back the category. And it's it's a real shame, uh, the subcategory. And it's a real shame because you know, really, all the pain points around contact lenses um, are, you know, all the pain points around contact lenses are connected to the um, to the to the affordability and you know, in the daily modality. So most complications come from people overwearing lenses um, because they're expensive because they're inconvenient to get and, um, you know, and and just um, higher compliance risk, taking your lenses in and out and putting them into solution every night with a reusable lens.
2: So good segue into your value proposition, right? You guys have essentially made disposables, daily disposables, super affordable at a $30 price point. Uh, Would you say price is the biggest sort of factor in terms of why customers are willing to try you guys out?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we we as we thought about the business, we wanted to situate ourselves as that, you know, as affordable players at the premium end of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, and so you think about what happened in razors with uh, you know Dollar Shave and Harrys, and those companies peeled off massive share from Gillette on a dollar basis, but um, you know, revenue in the in the category just you know shrank meaningfully. Part of what was interesting to us about uh, daily disposables was we, you know, we could kind of we could be an affordable and uh, you know affordable solution for the consumer while kind of continuing to grow the category by moving people from dailies, I mean, from monthlies and weeklies to dailies, hopefully, and um, you know, and sort of you know taking taking spend away from the solution and cases, um, and moving more of it into the contact lens itself.
2: So I guess that's how, I mean, that's how you get that sort of affordability at the premium end of the market. I think that's a difficult combination to come by.
1: Um, it's, you know, look, it's something we're, Ben and I are, um, co-founders on uh, two businesses with other CEOs. I will well, Um, but two other brands, um, Willow and adult diaper business, that was founded by Will Herlins and a uh, mockingbird, a stroller business. Uh, Founded by Eric Osmond that just went live a couple weeks ago. Um, And all three of those businesses, you know, sort of common themes, finding areas where we think we have defensibility on supply chain and and finding sort of premium subcategories within a broader category. So, you know, for example, Willow Adult Incontinence, there's a lot of diaper, adult diaper product out there. Um, There's relatively limited product um, that's sort of focused on a more underwear-esque look and feel. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of where we put our energy um, and similarly, Mockingbird, lots of strollers out there, but, you know, relatively little kind of going up against the um, premium up of a baby bugaboos of the world. And, you know, so again, let's get the consumer a more affordable alternative at the high end of the market.
2: So going back to something you said earlier about the timing of the seed round, how close were you guys watching what other subscription commerce companies were doing in the space? Were you studying the industry and were you watching sort of losers and winners and sort of taking away key lessons? Uh, as you built your own concept for this?
1: Um, I'll, I'll give Ben credit there. I certainly wasn't. I, I was on the, you know, I was at Columbia at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I kind of, my mindset was um, I had, you know, I, I was working with a few different friends on different startup ideas. Um, yeah. I, you know, I sort of figured, hey, I was on the investment management side of things. Um, investment management was kind of probably the only thing I was going to have ideas about then. And so might as well, you know, pitch in nights and weekends time um, for, friend's ideas and sort of get exposure to other spaces. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, Ben was certainly very thoughtful there. Um, particularly around, you know, I, I think one of the things that sort of wave to direct to consumer brands realized was the importance of dollar margin that, you know, high, high percentage margin is, you know, is, is very attractive, but, um, can create problems around, um, both sort of, you know, amortizing the shipping cost of monthly shipments, um and also sort of amortizing the costs of Facebook spend. Um, you know that if you're if you have a product that's 80 percent margin, but you know only throwing off um, you know four or five dollar margin margin dollars a month, um, that's just a little thin to walk into uh, into the Facebook auction with. So you know so thinking about a category that was you know still highly replenishable, but was um, you know a bit you know a bit bigger of a line item in the consumer's budget, so that we're solving a bigger pain point and as a result um, you know can bid up a bit higher. Um, Was important.
2: Yeah, I think the Facebook piece is interesting, and Facebook's importance to these types of businesses cannot be overstated. Um, It can't. (laughs) What What key lessons have you guys learned media buying uh, on the platform?
1: I think the biggest one is that um, keep investing energy and time in the platform. I I I think um, people people want to get too diversified too fast, and and I think people underestimate how much they you know how much upside there is to continue to grind away really hard, um, at Facebook. And I'd say, you know, look, ideally you want to do both. I mean, we've spent on and spend in, you know, TV podcasts, radio, direct mail, um, range to Pinterest, snap, um, affiliate, you know, in Google and Google display. So we're certainly in lots of channels, but we put a lot of energy into Facebook and Instagram, you know, and I think as, as a result, you know, we haven't seen any of the sort of um CAC LTV degradation in Facebook as a channel um that we hear about from a lot of other teams uh, you know if anything we have seen meaningful improvements there over the last year and a half or so do
2: you guys have a strategy to potentially hedge against the seemingly ever increasing CPC and CPM rates on Facebook
1: i it, you know it's a, it's it's a, it's a headwind and you have to try to get smarter faster than the CPMs climb I, you know i don't think there's really much more to that. I think if anything, it's funny that the problem's getting so much attention now because if anything, I think it becomes less acute every year. If you think about, uh, you know, Dollar Shave's trajectory as an independent business, um, they launched when Facebook CPNs were probably two, three bucks and sold when they were probably nine, ten bucks. Right. And so they experienced, you know, a 5X increase during their duration when you're thinking about, you know, dividing your LTV by your CPM, um, you know, which is sort of a crude proxy for an LTV CPA. That factor of five is enormous for us. You know, we probably started when Facebook CPNs were like 10, 11 in the newsfeed and maybe they're 16 or 17 today on average. And so we've only seen, you know, 50 percent bump. And so I I think, you know, the percentage basis ends up mattering here since you're doing everything on ratio math against the LTV. The percentage basis ends up mattering more than the absolute dollar climb in the CPNs. Um, and, you know, just by virtue of starting from a larger base, that percentage climb is getting smaller and smaller over time. Mm-hmm.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch.
2: Um, We had Josh Hicks from Plated on the podcast, and he was mentioning that one of the challenges is if you double your spend, uh, you don't necessarily double the amount of customers you require. So spending more money doesn't necessarily translate uh, in the same linear way.
1: I think a lot of the things that people talk about with Facebook are true of every channel, certainly supply-demand dynamics in terms of deploying dollars and acquisition volume you get out. But also, I mean, um, rising CPMs, it's, it's been a good, you know, obviously Facebook has grown much faster uh, because it's matured as a platform during this whole period. But, you know, TV upfronts go up every year. CPMs everywhere go up every year right now because it's been a good decade economically and people are spending a lot on marketing. No. And in the TV case, I mean, also you have the dynamic that, um, you know, a lot of legacy advertisers who, um, who are really much better set up for TV than digital channels and are kind of bidding up the inventory, um, you know, because that's where they're comfortable in the available inventory shrinking.
2: I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this idea that they need to outsource this piece to an agency. And typically, I don't know what your experience has been, but my understanding is that these agencies, their sort of pricing model is to lock you into some sort of monthly retainer, a period of say eight to 12 months in order to test a campaign. They take a percentage of your media buying spend and it's difficult for these businesses to you know, come within their target CPA range when they are uh, locked into that type of pricing model. Is that the case for you guys?
1: We're a mix of, you know, in house and out of house, and that's ranged over time. And we're honestly primarily external at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about striking the, you know, you, it's, you're replace if you're doing it, if, I don't know whether we're doing it right or not, but if you're investing energy in it, um, you're, you're really replacing one problem with another. Like I always used to think about this, you know, Columbia down inside, we were basically a fund of funds um, and it's a different problem, but, you know, fund to fund investing isn't shouldn't inherently be easier or harder than, uh, you know, than direct investing or everybody would be a fund to fund. You know, and similarly, managing agencies is a different problem from managing the spend directly, but it's just different. And I think, um, you know, I, I think the key is maintaining Flexibility. You know, it's obviously you need to find folks you to work with who deliver, you know, who you, you think are capable of delivering strong performance. But the biggest thing is flexibility. So the way we manage things generally is um, we have as many we work with as many buyers as we can, um, and you know we tell folks what our CPA target is, and if they can hit our CPA target, you know, meta fees. Um, then they can keep ramping spend, and if they can't, then we pull spend away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort, of, you know, that sort of gives us, a, you know, creates a, something of a competitive dynamic. Um, you know, we you know, where we can kind of, um, you know, sit in the middle and manage the relationships appropriately for our business.
2: What if a business is in sort of startup mode and needs to test and really doesn't understand what their target CPA range is?
1: At that point, you need to do the spend yourself because the problem is, you know, or you know, or there's lots of great businesses that never scale to, you know, multi-million dollar monthly marketing budgets, and the smart founders on those businesses do the spend themselves and you figure it out. Because the problem is, think about from an, you know, from agency sounds like WPP or publicist or something. You know, these are generally, you know, pretty small shops. You know, groups of sharp folks, and they're thinking hard about this too. You know, you know, and the economics on their end. Um, Whatever the exact structure of the deal, figure you know if they're if they're getting whatever X percent of your spend at the end of the day, and you're spending 100k a month or you know 50k a month on Facebook or 20k a month, um, how are you going to make the economics of that work other than kind of assigning overstretched talent um, to manage many many accounts at the same time? And so you know when you get to if you're spending a million two million dollars you know more a month. And now you're talking about, you know, being able to toss off 100, 200K in fees. That's enough, you know, that's enough upside to motivate people around the account. But when you're talking about only throwing off, you know, a couple of grand fees a month, you're not going to get the love and attention that, you know, that the account needs. And if you really care about the business, you got to do it yourself at that point.
2: If you're running on a freemium model, how do you monitor the quality of a traffic source, say coming from a new agency or a new affiliate? When you're signing up a bunch of trials and you don't necessarily know what the attrition is going to look like, uh, what the bill through rates are going to look like, et cetera.
1: You know, on the attribution side, our primary tool is fairly, you know, maybe overly simplistic. We, we use a post-checkout survey, you know, we'll cross-reference it against a bunch of things. We'll cross-reference it, you know, we'll cross-reference it against sort of GA. We'll cross-reference it against the reporting each individual channel is Producing, we also love to sort of take spend up and down on a particular channel for a period of time and just see how that impacts the overall CPA but but, you know, the post-checkout survey is a great attribution tool, single question, how'd you hear about Hubble? And the other thing that's great about that as an attribution tool then is it makes it very easy to do LTVs by channel. Mm. Um, you know, and for our business, it hasn't varied massively. Um, TV's a little higher, search is a little lower, but we kind of, you know, we take that information, we feed that into what our CPA target by channel is. Um, and by and large, it's kind of the same across channels.
2: You mentioned affiliate marketing. Um I think that's an interesting one to just explore for a couple of minutes. The negative stigma associated with affiliate networks, I think, is uh, common. And the big concern there is, you know, how do you monitor uh, fraud, affiliate quality, etc.? What lessons have you learned from uh, your experience in the affiliate space?
1: Um, honestly, relatively, you know, relatively early days for us in, in affiliates, uh, you know, I don't want to go too far out on a limb there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, and, you know, and a lot of those concerns are why we didn't step in there earlier, but, you know, but I, I mean, I, I think, so, you know, it's the basic common sense stuff, which is, it's a, it, it's, it's a space that's been around for a long time at this point. And so, you know, y- you can lean on different channels, reputations, and, you know, there are affiliates who have, um, reputations for being sort of, you know, fair dealers and good players and good traffic sources. And then there's, there are others who aren't. And, you know, and I and I think you kind of have to incorporate all that information into your decision making.
2: How do you find those good quality affiliates?
1: Um, I mean, you know, t- brands talk with each other. I mean, that's probably the, you know, the easiest way is just talk, talking with other brands about what's been working for them.
2: Okay. I want to switch gears to the uh, market for a sec. So, just for people that don't understand how big the contact lens industry is, what stats can you share that are interesting? And and what are your goals for market penetration?
1: It's like probably a nine, eight, nine billion dollar market worldwide. It, it's similar to you know a, a lot of the categories that have sort of attracted um, venture back direct to consumer businesses have been these you know sort of five to ten billion dollar categories, and I think contact sort of sits up right in there.
2: And product lines. Uh, lots of obvious extensions for you guys, eye drops and such. Uh, what have you looked at?
1: Honestly, we haven't invested a ton of energy there at this point, um, you know, mo- mo- mostly just focused on selling the contact lenses for now.
2: Customers have to cancel their subscription via phone, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So has that been a good strategy in terms of creating an opportunity to retain customers versus say, yeah, I mean, chat or email?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it, it's, it's very helpful because there's, you know, it's an opportunity to extend offers to customers it's also just an opportunity to troubleshoot with customers um you know there's a lot of customers who are canceling just because they don't fully understand the account management tools you know if you have somebody and they want to cancel next month's shipment and that's why they're canceling their overall subscription um you want to help them with that and retain the customer
2: Mm -hmm. and they can manage that all through your website right
1: they can manage all that through through the website but you know some some people miss you know you miss a link on the you miss a link on the page, and you know you think that an option isn't available to you. That's sitting there.
2: The website's actually very simplistic. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. easy to navigate. It's uh, very minimalist. I would say I'm not a branding person, but who was sort of the uh, branding architect for this?
1: Uh, we sure we we worked with um, we worked with a group called Athletics, um, based in Willingsburg. Um, you know, and uh, have been very uh, you know happy with the work that they did on the brand.
2: And in terms of managing the funnel from Facebook, for example, uh, to the site, has the sort of simplistic look and feel of the site uh, boosted conversions for you guys?
1: I'd say in terms of where marketing has gone, in terms of where marketing has gone on the funnel side, you know, a good agency at this point, you know, well-resourced agency, it's not just enough to be tinkering with uh, creators and audiences within Facebook itself. Um, it's a lot of landing page testing as well. And so, that, you know, and so I'd say there's many funnel experiences that consumers are having. You know, feeding them different content, feeding them our media pieces that are worked well, feeding them quizzes, um, and you know, constantly iterating on that side. Um, you know, and and so the the home page. You know, the majority of folks still come to the homepage ultimately before converting. Um, you know, but the homepage is kind of a more stable presence, um, you know, whereas there's, you know, tinkering elsewhere.
2: Were you selective in terms of the platform that you decided to build on and, and was the sort of backend recurring billing a big component of the consideration as to what platform you'd ultimately choose?
1: I mean, we went with Shopify, you know, I think Shopify has pretty dominant share at this point mm-hmm. and, you know, and then sort of vetted um, the different subscription plugins that Shopify has. Shopify doesn't have native subscription tools um, and ended up going with a, um, with an app called recharge that, that we, you know, been very happy with and, you know, working
2: with now since launch. Do you have a CRM also in addition to that?
1: I mean, we have, we have, we have Zendesk as, you know, as, as, a customer service platform, but we don't have sort of a dedicated customer file. tool. we have some stuff on the back end that we had to build um, for prescription management.
2: That mm-hmm. would kind of be. The end of it. So the agents that are servicing customers, they're, they're doing it all through Zendesk. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Zendesk is a great platform.
2: Ask you about this Reddit post that I read. Um, there's somebody that said, uh, with respect to Hubble, you get what you pay for. If Hubble offered something more comparable to an AccuView, for example, there's no way they'd be able to maintain their low price point. What is it about yeah. this comment or statement that this poster is missing?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's funny when you say AccuView, Accu J&J probably has I don't know, probably a dozen products under the AccuView brand. Um, the most popular, their most popular daily disposable lens by far is AccuView Moist, which is just like Hubble. What's happened is, um, you know, so in the late 90s, you, uh, the major manufacturers started rolling out silicon hydrogel as sort of a second generation material and standard for, um, for monthly and weekly lenses. Um, silicon hydrogel is um, higher cost and, high, and higher margin um, for the manufacturers. And so there's been a big push over the last, you know, 10, 15 years to make that the standard for dailies as well. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the thing, uh, you know, if people want to knock our lenses that they'll benchmark us against. Mm-hmm. Um, but the clin- and this is something, you know, uh, Dr. Levy always emphasized with us the clinical data on difference on performance difference there, um, doesn't really say, you know, there, there, there really, ha- you know, hasn't been proven out. And, um, and because of the price point the uh, Silicon hydrogel dailies, um, well, you know, being available on the market for a long time, you know, never sort of got, um, you know, majority or even particularly large share as far as we've seen. Do
2: you guys pay attention to these types of posts and do you care?
1: Um, I'd say we care, you know, look, our relationship with, we, we, we care about the vision care, community, you know, even if not all those interactions are always, you know, are always the friendliest. And, you know, we, you know, continue to try to put sort of a, you know, positive face and collaborative attitude forward there. And, you know, sort of with the mindset, which, you know, which we, which we've seen over time, not that we're all business, but, you know, now that we're a whopping, you know, two and a half optometrists haven't faced, you know, mass unemployment because of us. AccuV is doing, still doing an amazing business, an amazing amount of business. You know, just, you know, even with us in the market. And so, I, you know, I think hopefully, um, you know, as sort of those economic fears have tempered over, the to- over time, some of the other rhetoric gets dialed down as well.
2: Looking at timelines, you guys launched in 2016, still by any count, a young company, but a fast growing company, I believe one of the fastest growing direct to consumer brands in the States. Last time we talked, you were at a $65 million run rate. Are you comfortable sharing where you guys are at now?
1: Um, comfortable saying that growth has continued to remain uh, very healthy from there, but we don't like to put a a new number out there all the time. Uh,
2: Well, congratulations on that. Uh, Super exciting. What is next for Hubble?
1: Um, Sure. You know, we've been uh, over the last couple, over the last year or so, we've rolled out a lot of international markets. Um, We now have a um, telemedicine exam integrated into the um into the site right right now only for people who's you know who don't have a verified prescription but we'll be rolling it out as a front-end conversion tool over time as well um we just launched a site called um context cart which is a reseller of you know the major you know the major brands um you know the thinking there being that there's lots of traffic that we acquire that we can't convert because we don't you know we don't have every skew. we don't have astigmatism lenses in particular, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and so we're identifying people who want an affordable contact lens experience on subscription, um, you know, if we kind of can't, you know, produce the right experience for them, we might as well, um, you know, you know, still create it, you know, create it for them with products from others. Well, you know, we're running different retail tests very early there, you know, in terms of what makes sense for us on the physical side. But that's, that's, those are probably the, the, the biggest ones.
2: What interesting trends are you seeing in the subscription space today, and what do you think is sort of the next phase of the quote-unquote subscription economy?
1: I think what's interesting about where we are today is, and it kind of goes hand in hand with all the complaints about Facebook CPMS. It's a robust ecosystem at this point. There's, you know, probably tens of thousands of brands, and not more, depending on you know where you draw the lines. Um, and and I think it's a really interesting time to be thinking about. Um, everybody's so siloed. We're all in our own little, you know, we're on our own little micro environments in our little stores. Um, you know, what can we be building together? Um, you know, across brands to be better servicing a you know, consumer base that presumably has pretty high overlap.
2: So in terms of better servicing the marketplace, there's obvious synergies potentially with Warby and others. Uh, any talk of merging?
1: No, you know, I think we like, we like sort of the defensibility of our position on the, contact side and you know think about other categories that are similarly defensible on the supply chain side
2: in the last few minutes uh, i will give you a chance uh, jesse to both plug hubble of course uh and any yep. related offers and also talk about uh selling naked
1: hubble daily disposable contact lenses on subscription HubbleContacts.com. Willow willow diapers highwillow.com uh, mockingbird strollers uh mockingbird strollers yeah, those are the three brands we have live um, and then and then yes, uh, book coming out next year selling naked. We I'll continue to try to cram too many factoids into too little time or um, too little space I guess in that case. And um, you know and, and just sort of walking folks through everything on the direct you know getting the direct and consumer business up and running, how do you diligence ideas? how do you find suppliers? Um, how do you think through financing options? Um, how do you build your tech and marketing stacks and actually get up and running and you know hopefully live and then scaling. Um, and that'll be out from uh, Crown Publishing, February 2020.
2: Can you give, uh, I know we don't have a ton of time to cover your whole book, but um, can you give a couple of responses to those questions you just raised? Key lessons?
1: You know, I, I I think, you know, the biggest lesson is the less fun you make it, the more rewarded you are. You know, it's, it's direct, you know, it's direct to, con- it's, it's direct to consumer for a reason, which is, you know, the thing that this space has opened up is the opportunity to be more Um, heads down with your customer than ever before, Um, you know, whether that's how you're servicing them, you know, how you're communicating them through marketing, how you're servicing them on the customer service side, um, how you're continuing to learn from them to iterate your product and better fill their needs. Um, And there's a lot that's really exciting about that. But, you know, the the, the businesses that have done best there grind really, really hard because it's, you know, it's a lot of work to be absorbing all that information and, um, iterating on it and then absorbing it again and then iterating again. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's kind of, if, uh, if marketing needs to be Don Draper and big ideas and three martini lunches, you know, it looks much more like a bucket shop now. Um, and I think that's all to the, to the good of the consumer, but you know, um, cuts into hours of sleep. We will wrap up. Appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by ScriberBase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit ScriberBase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Acid.
1: Hey there, I'm DC. I host The Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews.
0: Electric Acid. Electric acid.